Hello everyone, welcome back to the Hot Politics Lab. We took a well-deserved holiday and uh, we're all well-rested to uh, advance to uh, what at the University of Amsterdam we call the second block of the first semester. And uh, um, we're happy to have our returning event, the Graduate Friday again, uh, with two speakers today, uh, Isabella Rabasso and Neil Fushing. And uh, Bert, uh, as you can see, is currently absent, but he will join us uh, shortly uh, so he can do the Q&A. Uh, that's great. Thank you. Uh, we are going to start with uh, Isabella Rabasso. Uh, I guess most of you know her by now. Uh, she's a PhD student at uh, the Hot Politics Lab at the Department of Political Science in Amsterdam. And um, she's uh, working on the topic of uh, emotional framing and she will uh, present a pre-analysis plan of, um, let's say, the, the second paper, roughly, of her dissertation. And um, as usual on Graduate Fridays, there will be presentations of about 10 minutes. They're immediately followed by Q&A. Um, so feel free, if you have a question, type it into the Q&A box once you have it, and then we'll moderate it once Isabella is done. And after Isabella, uh, uh, did the presentation, the Q&A will move to uh, Neil. Okay, uh, without further ado, I wanna yield the uh, the floor to uh, Isabella. Thanks, Kai. Um, let me just share my screen. Right. Um, hi, everybody. I'll be presenting, as Kai said, the second paper of my uh, dissertation, which is an extension or partly a loose replication of the first study and an extension of the first study. So I'll give a brief recap of the first study <coughs> um, that we've done and, and, and then I'll talk about what the extensions for the second study it, or what the extensions are and I'm quite interested in whether you think these are kind of the logical next steps or whether you think these um, kind of lead to other next steps and extensions that I haven't covered in, in this pre-analysis plan. Um, so I'll keep the introduction very short. I also have to speak really quickly because I'm very short on time. Um, and so basically, we know that anger and anxiety influence political behavior, anger mobilizes, both influence information processing. But what we know less about is what the causes are of um, political emotions, so emotions about politics. A lot of the work that has been done has looked at um, or has done observational work, so the, the correlations between, for example, anxiety and, and, and information seeking, or it has induced um, these emotions experimentally, but then on purpose, these emotions that were induced were often non-political, for example, using uh, memory recollection tasks. And these things, of course, tell us a lot about the causal role um, of emotions on um, political behaviors, but they don't tell us as much about the causes of these emotions. So this is broadly what my project is about. Um, and in the last paper already, we designed emotion frames. So we basically were interested in um, how different um, frame characteristics um, and basically the way that we discuss an issue influence the emotional responses that people have to the issue. And for this, um, we use cognitive appraisal theory arguing that certainty about the causes and consequences of an event increase anger and decrease anxiety, that a sense of control over an issue increases anger and a sense of no control or situational control increases um, fear, and that 
when a responsible actor is named and so responsibility is attributed, that increases anger. And we didn't expect an effect on fear. Um, and we tested this on five different issues that were not very salient, um, except for the one that is in bold, um, that parties had not really taken positions on and that were not clearly ideological, uh, ideologically left or right. Um, for the issue of refugees at the European border, we did um, write it in a way that it could come from a, or it could be interpreted as left-wing or right-wing, basically just criticizing um, a lack of um, EU response, but didn't say what these EU policies could be. Um, and we tested this on a, a representative sample of the Dutch population uh, with the surveying company Dinata in June. Uh, the stimulus that we had for the first study looked like this. So we always had an introduction question that was, for example, what are the consequences for certainty? What uh, is this preventable for control and who is responsible for responsibility? And then a manipulation that was either high certainty or low certainty and so on. And then we had a title and a base sentence that were constant across all uh, manipulations. And what we found was very quickly that basically anger was driven by responsibility attribution. So if a, a responsible actor was named, people were more angry. The exception of this was the refugees issue, where we found that certainty actually increased anger. And as you'll see later, it also increased anxiety. So what's possible is that here, certainty um, increases emotions that people already have, but we were not able to manipulate responsibility anymore, which could be because it's more Alien and people already have these ideas. But on the other issues, it's very consistent that responsibility increases anger. And for anxiety, we found the opposite. So we again didn't find any effects for certainty and control or no consistent effect. We found, as I said, the positive effect of um, certainty in the refugees issue. And otherwise, on three of the five issues, we found a negative effect of responsibility. So if no respons responsible actor was named, people were more likely to report feeling anxious. Right. Um, so what we concluded from this was that to some extent emotion frames do work and the way that we talk about an issue does matter for emotional responses, but that anger and anxiety seem to be driven almost exclusively by responsibility attribution. Now, in the second study, um, I want to do two things. I first want to uh, replicate these findings, but make some improvements to the research design and then extend um, the, the kind of test of the, the dominant role of responsibility that I found in the first study. So about improvements of the research design, um, as often when you run a study, just when it's too late, uh, you realize that there were some things that you would have um, done differently. The one thing that I did um, was I did not randomize the order of the appraisal dimensions. So they were always presented as certainty, control, and responsibility. And the issue with that, that could be that the, late, the last um, appraisal dimension might just weigh more heavily than the other ones. And there's a particular problem with control and responsibility because it's, pro it's possible that I can say this was not preventable and is not in human control, but then once I say someone is responsible, that this overrides basically the appraisal of control. So this is a problem that maybe could have led to um, the null findings of certainty and control and kind of the, the very strong findings of responsibility. 
Um, and then the second thing is the operationalization of certainty and control. So with certainty, I focused on the consequences, so it was prospective, but then it often just didn't really include that much information now that I look at it. So for example, saying uh, we know that this will have consequences is very vague. Um, so maybe it just needs a bit more information here. And for control, I focused on preventability, so retrospective control, but control also has um, an aspect of prospective control, so can we still change this? Um, and then about the extensions, um, as I said, I want to test uh, more closely this uh, dominant role of responsibility, and I want to do this in two ways. One is a selection task, so do people also seek out information on this appraisal more? And the second one is, um, do they pay more attention to this information? So I've basically already covered this, right? So more information for certainty and prospective control. And, and then there's another um, aspect of control that I didn't um, take into consideration in the first study, and that is a sense of um, power to change the situation. So it's not just um, about whether technically it was preventable, but, but having kind of a, a sense that I could have prevented it. And in politics, I would argue that this is not so much about an individual sense to change something, but a collective um, sense of power. So briefly, how I want to do this um, with certainty, just very briefly, I've just added a little bit more information. Um, so for example, here is the issue of the pesticide solution of Dutch rivers. Um, so I've just added a bit more information on, on, for example, researchers have detected this pesticide pollution all across the Netherlands, and they warn that this will have consequences for public health and nature. Um, and then low, I say basically they don't know where um, or where drinking water is still safe. Um, and it's unclear what the consequences will be. Um, with control, I changed a little bit more. So, so we have this, we can still reverse the pollution versus it's difficult to reverse for the perspective. Can we still change something about it? And then the kind of collective sense of power. Um, I've now um, tried to manipulate as, um, as this, you know, if you, if you believe this is a problem, you're not alone, local groups have been forming and many, particularly many Dutch citizens are ready to tackle this issue. Whereas in the um, low control condition, it says, Basically, no one is aware of this, and, and if you care about this, good luck, because no one else does. And the experimental setup is very similar to the other one, with one big difference. So we first measure background variables and control variables in Qualtrics, and then we show the stimulus. And here we split the sample in half, and one gets forced exposure, so this is exactly the same setup as in the past one. They just get one of the manipulations, either high or low. And then the second one, they get an information board and they can select which information um, they want to see. So do they want to see um, responsibility, certainty control, and there obviously has to be a time limit. So I hope to then be able to see what they select first is most important to them. And then I'm interested in three outcomes. One is the emotional responses. They'll be measured in the same way as in the past study. So people select an emotion that they felt and then they select the intensity of that emotion. And then the selection task, I'm interested in the order of, um, of the appraisals that are selected. And for attention, so relative attention of responsibility 
uh, versus the other two appraisals, I'm interested in reading time. And then also I want to compare the results um, of the forest exposure and the selection task. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about uh, two different options there later. Um, and I expect the same thing as in the first study. I expect um, certainty control, oh, this is all shifted. <laughs> um, certainty control and responsibility to increase anger and certainty control to de decrease anxiety. Uh, we didn't find any re mutually reinforcing effects, so I've now left these out for now. Um, and, and then on the relative importance of responsibility versus the other um, appraisals, I expect that information on responsibility is more likely to be, to be selected first than information on certainty and control. And that participants view information on responsibility for longer than information on certainty or control. Um, the selection task, obviously I can only look at the half of the sample that got the selection task for the attention task, uh, for the attention measure, the reading time, I can look at the whole sample. So what are the next steps? Um, I have to pretest again the uh, stimuli, especially if I'm interested in reading times, I have to make sure that they are um, equal in length and complexity. And then also I'm interested in whether they um, are equal in argument strength, especially with certainty where I was concerned that this um, has less information than the other appraisals. And then I need to check whether it um, manipulates the, um, the appraisal that it should manipulate. I have to program this selection task in Qualtrics and then pre-register and then I'm good to go. Um, but a few things are still open and I'm still thinking about them. So very happy to hear your thoughts on this. Um, the first one is about the selection task. So there's basically two options to do this. One, they select the headline. Um, so for example, they select what do we know or what can we do or who is responsible. And then behind that is a manipulation. Or the second option is that I allow them to select either high or low appraisals. So for example, for certainty, this could look like this. I could say what we know and what don't we know. Um, and this also has consequences for what I would expect for the differences in effects. So if, if they can select in the, in, into high and low appraisals, I would expect the effects to be stronger. Um, if they don't select them to them, I would basically expect them to be the same, but the selection task would just give me a measure of um, what information people seek and which appraisals are important to them. Um, and then about the selection task and the reading time, uh, reading time basically are these good measures um, for the, the relative importance of appraisal, of responsibility appraisals. And then finally, um, programming the selection task in Qualtrics. Um, if there are any tips or experiences in the audience, or if you know someone who has done something similar, I'm very happy to hear um, tips or, or do's and don'ts, et cetera. Um, and that's it, a little bit over time, but um, I look forward to your questions and comments. Thanks, uh, Isabella. And um, uh, maybe you can put up the screen with the questions uh, for people. Right, yeah. Thanks. And uh, welcome to Bertu. Nice haircut, right? <laughs> okay, so um, 
if you have any questions or, or comments, uh, advice that you want to give Isabella, uh, please uh, type your questions into the Q&A uh, box. Those are the two little uh, balloons uh, on, the, on the, the bottom of your screen in the middle. And then uh, we will read out your, um, uh, your questions. Um, while we're uh, waiting for the, the, the first one uh, uh, to appear, maybe, um, Maybe just start with a silly question from 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 my side. But um, if we look at at reading time, how you know how can we tell the difference between someone who started to do something else and is really thinking about something? Yeah, I'm. That's a good question. I have to think about a cutoff um, and maybe look at um, um, work that has used reading time as a proxy for attention and see where they. Um, have drawn the cutoff because, of course, some people might just not read it and click through it. Um, and some people might wander off and do something else. So there are definitely on, on both sides, there needs to be a cutoff. And then also what I didn't specify here, um, what I have to think about still is um, what to use as a baseline. So how, because there's differences in how quickly people read. Yeah. So it would have to be the difference from the average so for each respondent the, the difference of the average reading times or something hmm. for all appraisals yeah i think in qualtrics there's also something you could at least look at how many clicks people uh have done and and uh and yeah thinking maybe there might even be something like mouse movement or so because someone who has gone away will not move his or her mouse at all right so mm. yeah, i don't know but uh, yeah, there are different options here. Yeah. Uh, I have a, a question. Uh, this is in the asked in the chat box. So please write it into the Q&A box, not the chat box. Um, the question is from Lala Muradova. Um, how about merging the reading time variable with a manipulation check, which asks specific questions about the text? Yeah, I've thought about this. I haven't, um, well, because I haven't thought it enough and also for it um, in the interest of time I haven't discussed it here uh, I would like to use a manipulation check um, also to check whether people do then appraise these issues differently um, and yeah that could be done then it would have to be so it's it would have to be a, a fact like a, a recall question right of facts that were in the appraisal dimension and then that could be conflated by whether people believed it, but I could add another question on that. So, so the problem with appraisals is that it's not necessarily about facts, it's about a sense of responsibility, it's about a sense of control. So I wonder if in a manipulation check I could really capture that with factual questions. Um, because they might recall what I, what I said in the manipulation, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I successfully elicited um, this, this sense of, for example, collective power over an issue. And, uh, you could even see the recalling of information as an, an, uh, an additional uh, treatment that people uh, select themselves into, right? By recalling the responsibility that they will make that appraisal stronger. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, there's uh, <clears throat> a question from Nicholas Lowitz. 
Uh, I may have missed it, but would it help to be very explicit about assigning responsibility? For instance, X farming company has been caught dumping waste into Dutch rivers. Yes, so I didn't speak about the responsibility because it's um, it's a simpler manipulation and I I didn't change it from the first study, but that's basically how we manipulate um, responsibility in the first study. So with the pollution and indeed it was like responsibility was assigned to farmers. Um, I have also been thinking about making them more explicitly political. Um, so here about the EU, which is basically um, not been able to or has refused to pass any laws on on um, the use of pesticides. Um, but basically that that is what we do is in the responsibility manipulation, high responsibility, we make it ex very explicit. So it's really impossible to miss. And then in the ambiguous responsibility, we basically say it's a really complicated issue. It's very unclear who is responsible. So that's how we manipulate it. Okay, uh, we're moving to a question from Haley Kelsall. Uh, thanks, Isabella. I really need to see how this is developing. I wonder if you measure importance of responsibility through attention slash reading time. Is it necessarily the case that this would be greater than the others? If indeed responsibility attribution is the most important, could it not be also that this is faster since the important responsibility attribution is present or for that matter not present? Whereas this was missing from the others? Not sure, but wonder if you could share your thoughts on this. Yeah, that's exactly why I asked the question um, that is up on the slide, whether this is a good measure, because this is a concern that I had too. If this is a simpler appraisal that people, um, that is maybe more intuitive, they might also make it faster. So, and, and, it, and it's a kind of a simpler manipulation as I've just said as well. So it might just be simpler information to process and they just look for the actor and they're done. So yeah, that 100% that is a concern. Okay. Uh, question from Micah Homan then. Hi Isabella, interesting project. I just have some clarification questions. Are you going to conduct this study online again? I think the answer is yes. The answer is yes, yeah. Maybe if you would do a lab study, you could use eye tracking to measure attention. And are you going to use different issues again, salient and less salient topics? Yeah, so um, I agree. Uh, I, I would have preferred to do an eye tracking study, um, but for obvious reasons, um, that's not possible. Or maybe in Amsterdam it would be, but I'm not in Amsterdam right now. So hopefully I'll be able, like I'll, I'll use this as a first test and then I'll be able to do this in the lab and, um, and measure attention a little bit um, better because of the concerns that I've just um, um, expressed about, about this measure of attention of the reading time. Um, and what was, oh, about the issues, right. Um, so I plan to use the same issues um, more or less so I can really see whether this um, reconceptualization of certainty and control makes a difference. If I use other issues, as we've seen, it's not, it's very, um, um, robust across the four issues, but then not the responsible uh, the refugees issue. But there is a risk if I take completely different issues that if I find something different, I won't know if it's something um, about the issue or if it's really my changed manipulations. And that is something I do care about in kind of getting closer to how um, these emotion frames uh, work or could work. 
Um, so that's one part. Um, I am thinking about the COVID issue because I think that is an interesting one because it has become a lot more politicized since June. So I think that could be an interesting one. And the last meeting that we had, Kaisen Baird, I said I wanted to use this for a different exploratory part. But now actually I'm thinking maybe I'll just do it again and see if now it behaves like the refugees issue, which could be a good indication that it is about kind of the salience and that is why the refugees issue was different um, from the other ones in June. But other than that, I think I want to use, so I'm just unsure about the COVID issue, what to do with that. Um, if I should test that again and see if it's different now, that people have a clearer um, uh, idea of who is responsible than they did in June. Yeah. Um, there's currently no question. Uh, So uh, <clears throat> let me um, uh, let me ask you another question. Um, what um, what do you think would happen if we if we would do these selection tasks and we would introduce much more highly salient issues? How would that sort of change people's behavior in this this setup? I think with very salient issues, it's it's um, it's difficult because they might already have they might not select the things that they already have an idea about. Um, so if they already have an idea of um, of who is responsible, they might not look at this. Um, or they might, you know, so there might be some. It depends on how much information we give in the in the in the headlines. I think that is one of the reasons why I want to keep the headlines quite vague because I don't want to um, I don't want it to be kind of distorted by some confirmation bias that people click on what they already believe. So I do want to keep it quite vague, but yeah, and then. So actually then I think maybe it wouldn't, I think there is a risk that they wouldn't select things that they already have an idea about, but they wouldn't really know what's behind it. So they might still be curious. And then there might be some motivated reasoning going on once they see the information and they don't believe it. But I don't think it should affect the, the selection itself. Hmm. Thinking about this, did you think of monitoring the reading time, the selection time? how long they take to make a selection i haven't thought about this but but yeah i could i could but i wonder what that would tell us exactly <laughs> i don't know i don't know uh there's a question from uh let's see uh matthijs and a question from bert and uh and we're also running a bit out of time. So uh, quick questions, quick answers. Um, Matthijs, when do you think this second experiment will be in the field? If you would feel it before or in March, COVID-19 might be very interesting. But we will also have general elections in March. Uh, hopefully before March. Yeah. Hopefully very soon. Okay. Uh, Bert, 
Yeah, thanks. I agree that we should probably not only do this before March. Um, so, how? Rephrase the question. Um, some of this work that is used in selection tasks has been used to to um, show that the treatment effects are actually under that overestimation in forced exposure compared to selection. Mm -hmm. Is that what you expect for responsibility, the strongest effect in your previous study, that it's actually because of the, once we select in, that the treatment effect becomes weaker? Or do we expect something different? So it, it kind of depends on whether you expect people to avoid information that makes them emotional or seek out information that makes them emotional. Um, and that might be an individual difference whether they do so and there might also be a difference between emotions now that I think about it so it might be that anxious people would avoid information no actually no they don't <laughs> sorry <laughs> they maybe wouldn't um, yeah I don't so I it's it, it is possible that um, that it leads to an overestimation in this particular case I'm not a hundred percent sure I think it depends on what other inf if there's other information now in the current setup they, they really only have these appraisals to choose from so it's mostly about the selection order I think if I added other things then it would be a more realistic um, environment where they can select all types of information um, and they might not always select the responsibility one I think if the task is really to make sense of the issue I would expect them to select responsibility as it kind of being the, the thing that shapes um, where they fall kind of on the emotional spectrum on this, um, on this issue more. Um, so it, it kind of, so with the, if the, if the, um, if the appraisals are manipulated behind the headline randomly, I wouldn't necessarily expect a difference. Um, if they can select into higher or low appraisals, um, I would, based on the, on the work that we know uh, of anxiety by um, Albert and Guderian, I would expect that it increases so that anxiety responses are more intense because people are already feeling anxious. They select information that will make them even more anxious. So they might select information of what don't we know. They might be more likely to um, select this, the, the anxiety appraisals. Okay. Okay. Thanks a lot, Isabella. And uh, uh, thanks for the presentation. I think uh, we're all looking forward to, um, to uh, the results. And, and I think, uh, I hope maybe uh, the next graduate Friday that you are available, uh, we can, uh, we can, uh, we can see them. Um, let's go to the second speaker for today, uh, Neil Fushing. Uh, Neil is a um, is my uh, research assistant. Uh, I've been torturing him for the last few months with uh, uh, trying to make sense of our physiology data, and particularly the 1980s software that goes with it. Um, Neil uh, is uh, is also a, a student in the research master in communication science at the Amsterdam School of Communication Research. And uh, 
currently uh, writing his thesis, right, with uh, Bert, and uh, that that's what you will be pre presenting, right? It's, no, it's not a thesis. Uh, it's an internship. Or just a fun yeah, project. It's just a project. It's just a, it's project. Just a fun project. <laughs> just like weekends. I'm bored. Let's look at childhood personality. Exactly. <laughs> okay, Neil, uh, same drill for you. Uh, they are, Great. Uh, yield the floor to you. Let me share my screen one second. Okay. Sorry about um, the distracting uh, curtains behind me. Hopefully we can get past that. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm, uh, I'm doing a project on a childhood personality and ideology um, using evidence from two different uh, conceptual replications, um, two longitudinal um, studies based in the UK. Um, and basically, my question is going to be um, how how best to uh, back up these findings. I'm going to be trying to um, uh, publish uh, null findings, and so anything about additional robustness checks or anything like that that could uh, help uh, back up the results would be greatly appreciated. Um, okay. Okay, so uh, the association between ideology and personality. Uh, so psychologists and uh, political scientists have long um, been drawn to understanding the association between um, uh, personality and political ideology. Um, a dominant perspective is that there's meaningful left and right differences um, that may be uh, rooted in basic uh, personality dispositions. Um, uh, these could be due to difference in psychological needs, motivation, orientation towards the world, etc. Um, for example, uh, past research has found uh, conservatives are more um, respectful of authority, less open to experience, and uh, less tolerant of ambiguity. Um, however, um, while most of these studies have uh, connected concurrent or subsequent behavior uh, to ideology, the nature of these studies uh, do not really allow researchers to disentangle um, whether personality is indeed causing ideology. Um, did I go past? Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, so there's two previous studies uh, that I'm gonna basically be working off of. Um, the first one's Block and Block um, that looked to uh, investigate the developmental roots of ideology before uh, individuals became political beings. Uh, they uh, looked at 95 children um, at the age of three and four, and then they looked at ideology 20 years later. Um, they did correlations at the p-value of 0.1, um, and basically they argue based off these correlations that they found that conservatives of both genders were uh, characterized um, as being psychologically unflattering, such as being anxious, uh, fearful. Um, so uh, a second study was done uh, a few years later that used many more um, participants, 650 kids, um, but they only looked at four different uh, things, restlessness, shyness, attentional focusing, um, sorry, this is blocking it, um, and fear. So this was a, at age uh, four and a half, and then they looked at ideology at 18. Um, basically, they found um, uh, children that uh, had difficulty paying attention, um, were less restless, and had higher levels of fearfulness at uh, 54 months were more likely to be conservative at 18. Um, these were results were largely consistent with block and block. Uh, the only main difference was that they didn't find liberals to be more restless um, as children. Perfect. So the present study. Um, so uh, I'm going to be using two, I think I just skipped something. I am sorry. 
um, causal link there it is sorry about that uh, so there's reasons to um, question this causal link thank you Okay. Uh, well-powered studies that had looked at um, evidence of conservatives and uh, liberals differing um, were not able to be replicated. Um, Cross-sectional studies that looked at childhood and ideology um, are also show that it's already kind of weak. Uh, so we shouldn't really expect there to be association between childhood personality and ideology, or at least not for it to be um, as strong. Um, and lastly, a childhood personality is in and of itself, not a very strong predictor of adult personality. Um, and from the previous two studies, there are some questions raised about uh, ideology being measured at uh, the age of like 18 or 20, and also the sample size of these. Um, so for the present study, um, I'm going to be uh, using two different data sets from the UK, um, two quite large data sets uh, that are longitudinal studies. Uh, the first one is uh, the 1958 uh, National Child Development Study. Um, I'm using this more of the exploratory analysis. Um, overall, there is uh, 9,220 uh, students or kids at the age of seven and 8,756 at the age of 11. And then ideology was measured at the age of 42, so much later, and it um, was measured using eight different um, policy questions, and we'll get to those in a second. And then the other um, data set that I used was from the 1970 British cohort study. Um, so this one, based off the exploratory analysis uh, of the NCDS, this one was pre-registered. Um, like the NCDS, it also measured um, personality at two different ages, uh, at age uh, five and at age 10. Um, but once again, it uh, looked at ideology at age 42 with uh, eight personality questions, policy questions, excuse me. Um, so, so the present study. So uh, for the child personality traits, there was, um, you can see on the left, all of the ones that are listed. Um, these were measured um, by uh, the, the parents, usually the mother of the kids. Um, they were basically the same questions across um, the two different studies. The only difference was uh, restlessness wasn't asked in the NCDS uh, and it was asked in the BC. Uh, 70, so that was included just for that one. Um, in terms of ideology, it was pretty much the same, just differences in wording mostly. Uh, for social, there's five different questions about support for death penalty, abortion, uh, your respective traditional values, um, uh, your willingness to uh, tackle environmental problems, and whether lawbreakers deserve stiffer penalties. For uh, adult ideology, um, there's three questions uh, for economic side of things, um, and that would be that the government should redistribute income, uh, big businesses benefit um, owners over the workers, and uh, ordinary people do not uh, receive the fair share of the nation's wealth. Um, so unlike the previous, or at least of block and block that only use correlations, um, uh, I wanted to use um, more rigorous statistics, I guess, and so I focused on um, doing regressions. So um, on the right side, we've got the overall conservatism on the, uh, or excuse me, on both of them, but for on the right, it's the NCDS, and for the left is my, uh, the pre-registered BCS70. Um, basically, at least looking on the right, we see that there's no consistent relationship between a childhood personality and a adult conservatism. Uh, none of the eight personality traits measured at age seven correlated with adult conservatism, and only two of the eight um, measured at age 11 predicted adult ideology. 
those being uh, childhood solitude and childhood irritability. However, the effects were in the wrong directions. Uh, liberals, not conservatives, were more solitary and irritable at 11, not conservatives. Um, uh, and then turning to the pre-registered on the left, um, again, only two of the nine uh, personality traits um, measured at uh, seven were associated with adult ideology. Uh, childhood restlessness was positively but weakly associated with uh, conservatism in adulthood. Um, but childhood solitude, contra contrary to what we expected, was negatively associated with conservatism. Um, basically summing up the overall conservatism, uh, only six of the 34 measures of childhood personality traits had a statistically significant association with conservatism, and four of these six were actually in the wrong um, direction. Um, and I also just want to pose, uh, point out um, the effect sizes right here. Um, uh, the, our dependent variable was measured from zero to one. Um, so uh, effect size of you know, 0 0.02, 0 0.04 is uh, quite small. Um, so I also wanted to break up conservatism or ideology more generally um, into social ideology and um, economic ideology. Um, and so, next slide. Uh, so I also did um, uh, coefficient plots for this as well. Um, on the right, again, we've got the NCDS. Um, six of the eight personality traits did not show statistically significant and positive associations. Uh, childhood willingness to fight was positively associated, but it was also very weakly associated um, with uh, social conservatism. Um, looking at the pre-registered one, we find uh, neither ch childhood willingness to fight nor childhood worry were associated with social, so social ideology in both waves, while they were for the NCDS, which kind of shows you that uh, depending on which one you look at, the results are different. Um, but uh, once again, just like taking it all together, we find that only 10 of the 34 measures of childhood personality traits had a statistically significant association with social conservatism. And only five of those um, were in the direction that um, we expected. Um, and then also for economic ideology, um, once again, looking at the right side, the NCDS, um, only two of the Personality traits were linked to economic ideology in both waves, um, solitude and willingness to fight. But again, wrong direction. Um, they were negatively associated with economic conservatism. Uh, the only childhood personality that was linked to economic conservatism in both waves of the um, BCS70 was childhood uh, disobedience. Um, all total, again, only 11 of the 34 measures of childhood personality traits were associated with economic conservatism. Um, and all but one of them were actually in the wrong direction as well. Um, so this is just the whole plot altogether. It just kind of helps you visualize um, the, the effects or the really small effects or the non-effects, however you want to take it. Um, basically, uh, you can just see that everything's hovering around um, the co uh, coefficient estimate of zero. And then even if it is statistically significant, it's um, often a, a very, very, very small effect size. Um, the big things here also, um, some things are, like I had mentioned quite a few times, are in the opposite direction. Uh, so things like disobedience and solid solitude um, predicted uh, um, liberalism, not conservatism, which is um, quite uh, different than not only what we expected, but what past uh, studies have found. Um, so 
publishing no findings is hard. Um, so to, to try to uh, get over that, uh, we did quite a few different robustness checks. Um, we did correlation matrices like block and block did. Um, we, I changed the dependent variable instead of being um, political uh, conservatism, I changed it to political extre uh, extremity. So instead of looking at your ideology, just more looking at if uh, these personality traits predicted whether you were more extreme, um, regardless of your liberal or conservative. Um, also looked at uh, regressions using just each political issue instead of collapsing all eight or the five and three, um, but just looking at each issue. Um, I also for the National Child Development Study, uh, they had, um, instead of asking uh, the parents to rate the kids, they also had one where they asked the teachers to rate the kids, which is uh, closer to um, the uh, previous studies. Um, but also, they, they had very similar questions um, that were uh, scaled on a very similar scale. Um, but overall, the, the results look very much the same um, of just um, no findings. Um, and lastly, we've also done a Bayesian analysis to try to approve uh, the no findings. Um, but uh, that's basically where I'm at right now. Um, anything that uh, stands out is that something that I missed or an additional robustness check that I could perform or anything else just to uh, help back up uh, these results would be great. Um, uh, overall, I do want to say that this study is focused on childhood personality. Uh, it does not speak to the link of ideology and concurrent and subsequent behavior. Um, but with all of that said, it seems likely um, that the link between childhood personality and adult ideology is not as strong, at least as it um, has previously been found to be. Um, as I discussed, the insignificant results, the uh, direction, the relationships in the wrong direction, and the small effect sizes. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Neil, and I uh, also want to uh, compliment you on an excellent presentation. Um, this, is, uh, this is great, and, uh, and you're uh, uh, among the students that have uh, really stood out for me in the last years, and uh, you've been working with Gijs in the lab, uh, doing, some, uh, doing some stuff on questionable research practices with Jeff uh, Lelkus, and then you're also working on this, and besides that, you're also completing some courses with excellent grades. So, uh, my compliments. There's already a question from uh, Mark Brandt, somebody who uh, knows uh, this literature uh, well. And uh, Mark has a question for you. Can you explain why it's unexpected for disobedience to predict liberalism? Under the assumption that conservatives are more authoritarian, wouldn't we expect to be more obedient and liberals to be more disobedient? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. Um, there, I think a lot of, going through the different uh, studies and the different findings, it, there's also some, um, uh, in, uh, it's not always the same depending from one study to another study. So the reason why I, I had all of the um, childhood personalities predicting um, uh, conservatism, social or economic, um, was based off of the two previous studies that uh, I was trying to replicate, um, most, most specifically being the block and block one. Um, they talk about just all of um, negative personalities at um, childhood being associated uh, with um, adult conservatism. So just along those lines, um, we just kind of just thought to follow everything with uh, predicting um, adult conservatism. Um, that's a fair point uh, that was uh, just made. Um, other things that I've also heard about is like restlessness. Um, restlessness, uh, somebody, 
some studies have found uh, predicts liberalism and not conservatism. Um, so, you know, I could have switched around the hypothesis too, but just to be kind of consistent and to be able to talk to the uh, two studies I'm trying to conceptually replicate, I just kind of had them all predicting um, uh, conservatism. Yeah, that's a remarkable response. Thanks, that all makes sense. Um, please, uh, if you have questions for Neil or also ideas of where, uh, Gijs has a question, yeah. And he has yeah, the uh, right to speak. Really awesome uh, uh, work. Um, uh, very promising, I think. And uh, I don't think this will be uh, too hard to publish. Of course, you do have to uh, fight against uh, uh, a couple of people here, but, uh, but I think the results are pretty uh, convincing. Um, one minor thing, and maybe you've already done it, but I, I would actually be interested in sort of getting a feel for the average effect in, in, in the, the, the other uh, research uh, that, 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 that's, that, has, that uh, you've discussed in your literature review, right? Uh, yeah. I think yeah. Uh, and typically people do a little bit their best to make effect sizes look nice, but if you think a little bit longer about them, they, 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 they are often already quite small, as small as you. Uh, actually present them but my that's just a suggestion but my question is um is uh, is a bit different uh and that's um um we kind of assume i mean so maybe the maybe the, maybe the problem here is that personality isn't stable but that that's typically what personality psychologists want to talk about but maybe the other problem is that ideology isn't stable uh and i'm not sure exactly when when were people asked okay so these are different cohorts so people were asked about their ideology at different times right or not no so uh it, it was just uh they were asked at the age of 42 basically all of the these eight uh, policy questions so i did go back because it was you know uh quite a few different waves and i looked around the age of 18 and around age 20 because at least that i could then kind of much more conceptually replicate um block and block in the Fraley at all papers um, because that's kind of around the time that was also they were measuring it but there weren't any questions like that so the only kind of snapshot in time I have of of these political uh, these people's political interests is, is at age 42. Yeah so look this is not something you can do in your study because you know you you, you can't have variation ideology but it, it, the, the differences in findings across studies may be due to the fact that ideology itself uh, is changing in these different contexts or not. So maybe it changed in your context, but not in the other context. It's something we can't really exclude. Yeah, most definitely. Okay, yeah, and then Mark Blunt, uh, for those interested, also uh, posted a paper in the, uh, in the chat uh, showing some panel data from New Zealand from Chris Sibley and Danny Osborne's uh, team where they uh, look at personality and ideology in adulthood over multiple waves and they find basically that uh, there's no uh, no evidence that uh, that personality changes are predicting uh, uh, changes in, in in subsequent ideology that's worth a read uh, question neil uh, from tobias horbach super for all robustness checks i find evasion analysis particularly interesting in this case could you elaborate on the strategy here it might be helpful to calculate and compare the base factor or your reference studies within your own. Um, I can't talk too much of it at this point. Um, it is currently uh, being updated and done. We 
initially, um, I had just done, we had just done it for the NCDS, um, and uh, then at, when we were doing exploratory, and it hasn't yet been done uh, to include the um, uh, British cohort study, um, and I don't, you know, know any, can't think of any of the numbers off the top of my head. It's uh, just deep, deep in my code somewhere right now. Sorry about that. Uh, from uh, a question from Noon Abdul Qadir from the uh, Communication Science Department. Uh, in the robustness checks, is there a reason for using political extremism rather than just leaning? Proving an extreme position may require arbitrary cutoff. So, what's the reason to look at extremity? Uh, it was just an, um, another. I'm trying to think of, um, and I know you probably remember his name, Barrett, um, the per, the uh, researcher who um, brought up extremity for a lot of reasons. Um, do you remember his name? Well, uh, among others, uh, uh, there has been uh, uh, some people. Uh, Mark, among others, have uh, Mark Brown have have raised the point that it might be extremity rather than uh, than asymmetry. Um, um, yeah, exactly. And I, and I just kind of wanted to look at, I was trying to find different ways to look at this data. Um, and uh, for extremity, it was just many people were, um, when I plotted um, the ideology, whether social, general, um, or economic, uh, it was very nicely distributed. Uh, so I was also just really curious about the, the people at the end. Uh, so it was just a way to kind of um, just see if instead of ideology, if it was something else that personality may be um, influencing. Right, yeah. Um, and um, suggestion from Mark, um, this is all uh, nice. Uh, and, and Mark has a suggestion along the lines, like if you have personality of two waves, it'd be nice to know what the test retest is. And then compare the size of the test retest to the size of the personality ideology coefficient. Presumably, personality ideology can won't surpass the test retest, and so test retest provides some sort of benchmark. I think this is an interesting point, uh, Neil, to take in. Yeah, most definitely. I'm writing it down right now. No, I think that's great. Yeah, maybe something like using the list panel, you could actually do this. The test repeated measures of these of both ideology and personality. Yeah, most definitely. That's wonderful. Uh, questions from Matthijs. Thanks, Neil. This is very interesting. Well done. Could you tell us more about two things? I'll read them out one at a time. The correlation between childhood personality and adult personality. Can you assess that with these data, or has this been done in other studies? Uh, it has. Um, it has been done in other studies, and I also did do it in this study. Um, uh, kind of when I was talking about in the from the theory section, I was talking more about um, just uh, results that other people have published uh, to go to. But I actually did in this study itself look at um, uh, personality uh, predicting. So both, basically, I looked at um, all of the childhood, the nine different uh, child behaviors, and I looked at if they correlated to the Big Five because the Big Five was asked, I believe, um, like in your early twenties and also in your mid thirties. Um, and the correlations were just uh, quite low um, across the board between looking at the childhood to adult and then even comparing the, the big five at the age of 20 to whatever it was at 30 was also um, not very strong. Um, so I, my big takeaway was if even within this own uh, sample is if uh, personality then is not correlated with personality just a little bit later, why would we think you know, childhood 
and personality would be linked to ideology. Um, so yeah, both, both looked at in this study and also um, was referring to uh, other people's studies. Uh, second question from Matthijs. What does the literature say about the role of the family of the child? The correlation between childhood personality and ideology uh, could theoretically, of course, also be due to socialization. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, in actually the second uh, of the two um, papers that I'm conceptually replicating, the Fraley et al. paper, uh, they actually had two different studies within this paper. Uh, one is the um, personality, and that's the one I'm uh, speaking towards. But they also, the second part of it was um, uh, uh, the parental uh, rearing strategies. So whether they were like authoritarian parents, whether they uh, um, used, uh, uh, what was it, uh, corporal punishment and, and stuff like that. And the results seemed uh, quite a bit stronger uh, than uh, personal uh, than personality. So it definitely seemed like um, that, uh, you know, child rearing your family um, has much more um, going on than maybe just personality itself does. Uh, but I, at least looking through the data, I didn't see any way to um, uncover that within the data I have myself. So hitting your children matters. Apparently, yeah. Hitting your children <laughs> matters, yelling at your children matters. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they they seem to be more conservative, but uh, that's once again that's the freely at all paper that um, uh, you know might might have been underpowered too as well. Um, and while the effect sizes were bigger than uh, they were for personality, it wasn't like they were big effect sizes. They were, they're still quite small. They were just bigger than uh, personality. Yes. Um... Thanks, uh, Neil. Uh, we're approaching four o'clock, and I, I want to once more give you a big compliment for uh, for doing this work. Uh, I agree with Gijs that I think this uh, this should, and uh, and I think uh, also will will be published. I think there's a right now a I am um, obviously have a stake partly in this agenda, but I think there's a there's a critic more critical assessment of this literature that. Uh, whether or not there is evidence for a ideological asymmetry and there's actually quite some evidence accumulating that maybe these aside from cross-sectional correlations there's not that much evidence there yet so uh, I think this we're gonna oh, definitely gonna try to help you to get this out um, that said, thank, thank you, you. Uh, thank, thank you, you for um, for this uh, for this presentation um, this we're approaching the end of the lab um, uh, next week we have Jen Jarrett who just moved to Dartmouth uh, and will talk about uh, the effects of uh, a study on misinformation. Uh, there's actually a paper going to be uh, sent uh, available. If you're not on our mailing list, just send an email to Maika uh, who can distribute the paper to you. The week after we have uh, Ashley Jardina who will talk about white identity politics. And then um, the week after... Um, um, the week after we have Ursula Hess on uh, facial uh, mimicry. Uh, so uh, a diverse uh, set of excellent speakers in the coming uh, weeks. Uh, so definitely uh, stay around, uh, uh, join in, tune in, listen to us, watch us, and uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks a lot. Thanks everyone.